welcome everyone to the Australian Bitcoin podcast. I'm Justin, your host, and today I'm joined by Lloyd to discuss Lightning Network privacy and his current Bitcoin projects, including Gun, GunFun, and the Frost multi-signature protocol. But before we start, a quick word from our sponsor. The Australian Bitcoin podcast is brought to you by hardblock.com.au. Hardblock is Australia's oldest Bitcoin-only exchange. They have no added fees and are optimized for dollar cost averaging. Sign up to Hardblock today using the discount link in the description below to receive free auto-send batched Bitcoin withdrawals for six months. All right, Lloyd, how's it going? G'day, pretty well. It's good to hear. I've just, uh, I've just uh, moved to Malaysia. That's one uh, interesting thing. You're, you're still in Australia, so I'm, I'm interested to know how you're going. Do you have electricity still? I guess you do. Are you running on batteries at the moment? <laughs> no, we've got some electricity still. Uh, apparently, there's just like a little bit left for everyone. We have to ration it or something like that. <laughs> and uh, things have seemed to become a little bit less draconian in regards to, uh, to masks and to lockdowns and check-ins and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, you never can tell when that's all going to change rapidly again. Yeah. Was that uh, maybe some of what prompted the not just trip, but maybe even move to Malaysia to get a bit more freedom? Uh, actually, no. I mean, there isn't really more freedom. It's more like, um, you know, if I'm just going to have my rights fragrantly violated, might do it somewhere else that's cheaper, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, so that's true. At least you get a bit more flexibility, I think, in that regard. I also like it here. I just love it here as well. Yeah. Have you traveled there much before? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my wife's from here, so uh, I've been here for quite a few times and um, I really enjoy it, yeah. Oh, that's good. And I'm sure she'll appreciate that as well. I actually heard yeah. something on the radio this morning that said last year, Adelaide uh, from South Australia, obviously, was rated the third most livable country in the world or place in the world, sorry. <laughs> Whereas now, as of this year, we've dropped to rank number 31 or 32 or something along those lines. Australia no longer even features uh, in the top 10, as I understand it. Whereas we used yeah. to have a couple of uh, cities in the top 10. And most yeah. of that is due to, yeah, kind of the draconian overstep of government during COVID and, and other things that were going on at that time. So yeah, mm -hmm. there's obviously an impact. People see it as well. Yeah. Well, we might as well pivot a bit Talk, uh, talk about Bitcoin and Lightning Network privacy and everything else. I figure maybe yeah. a good chronological way to go into it would be to tell just a bit about your Bitcoin history, like what got you into Bitcoin in the first place uh, and some of the stuff that you're working on at the moment. Yeah, sure. I was, um, like many of your listeners, um, a shitcoiner in the beginning, uh, somewhere in 2017, 2018. And... Uh, Long story short, I guess, like many people, the bear market makes people into Bitcoin maximalists. And by the end, um, by the end of 2019, I was firmly a, a Bitcoiner, let's say. And uh, from there, I've, my stint in shitcoinery got me interested in uh, cryptography, actually. So I do owe some debt of gratitude to them because I was trying to figure out which one, which shitcoin was the better one based on mm. its uh, you know, scientific achievements, let's say. And so I uh, learned some of the basics of there and i transferred that over to bitcoin when i saw how many interesting things were going on in the cryptography space in bitcoin and um, got interested in that field started working started making some contributions uh to the theory around uh bitcoin cryptography i guess um, some minor ones and um yeah continued to do that became involved in engineering as well as a software engineer was um Naturally, naturally got uh, involved in that and building the systems and building the cryptography that I thought would be helpful to Bitcoin's future. And yeah, so I sort of 
look at Bitcoin protocols from a sort of uh, try and be theoretical from a theoretical perspective and try to really get to the bottom of not what the practical reality of the protocols are today, but what how they are right now, but how they could be and how they might change in the future as what we as we develop the science of this uh, Bitcoin related cryptography better. It's true, I guess, uh, when something is relatively new and there's going to be many new discoveries that spring from it, it's hard to yeah envisage the next system or, or what it's going to look like in future, isn't it? But I mean, that, that's part of the job. We have to try to have at least the general direction or, or a rough idea of where it might go to. But yeah, as new discoveries spring up, it's going to drastically change the shape of things in future. Yeah, yeah. I, I run a, I made a website called bitcoinproblems.org to sort of just list theoretical problems we have uh, going forward. And there's not a complete list. It's just like whenever I need to brain dump something, I put it on that website and other people are contributing to it too. So we've got, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of one way I try to keep track of these things. I'll link to that in the show notes because I hadn't seen that before until you messaged me when we were talking about the podcast. And I've found that really, really useful just to get my head around a few problems which I knew existed but didn't have kind of a one-stop shop of technical explanations or even proposed solutions. And there was a few things in there that I, I had no idea about, which was just good to get my head around. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, is this something that you have done uh, in the past? As in, do you have uh, past relevant uh, either work or qualifications that kind of led you to this? Or was it really since sort of like 2017, shitcoining, getting into cryptography, um, and then sort of uh, dabbling a bit more with Bitcoin? Is, is that the trajectory? Or yeah, did, did you yeah, come almost? All. I guess I've become what I am totally in um, the Bitcoin space. Um, That's yeah. incredibly impressive, man. That's like a, a very short amount of time to get to the point that you're at now. Yeah, thank you. Um, it has been a wild ride, yeah. <laughs> I imagine one of the things that's probably helped get your head around it would be the wallet that you've developed, which is Gun or a Go Up Number, mm. because that's a, like a command line interface wallet, and you've got yeah. like a betting, uh, like a uh, I guess you just call it bettering, betting or wagering, um, yep. kind of uh, what, what would you call it? like an extension to it called Gun Fun. Yeah, that, has well, that been... Gun uh, Gun is really just the that, that's the documentation for the command line wallet. Gotcha. Uh, that's just the website. Uh, the dot fun is just because I like things to be fun and it rhymes <laughs> with gun. I'm so, I sort of, uh, you know, going back to COVID, I sort of came up with the go up number acronym, uh, backronym uh, while we're in lockdown. So it's more demented. I think it's a more demented name than I would have liked. Actually, I would like to change it. So if you're offended <laughs> by guns and stuff, I I feel you actually <laughs> on that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a command line wallet, but I just sort of wanted to build a command line wallet so we could experiment with Bitcoin protocols without having to go through the whole user experience uh, side of things. So just like a command line where we can just try them out. One protocol I did to sort of start off that direction was a, was a betting protocol that I had on my mind for a while where you could just post messages between each other on a, on a chat app or on, on Twitter even and set up a bet on something. Uh, with Bitcoin, so with an oracle who would decide the outcome of the the event, uh, but to you and I be able to set up a bet, sort of semi-privately, um, even in a public space like on Twitter, uh, between each other, and uh, I implemented that. I did a few bets with people. It didn't really catch on, I think, uh, because of the limited nature of the command line, the limited audience that that offers. 
Um, but it, it taught me a few things. Um, and it's on about the software engineering of the project and on the, the about user experience of command line things and how it's not really insufficient. <laughs> so, I, you know, that's a, and, and about how we can develop that kind of protocol in the future as well. Absolutely. Do you use DLCs for the betting uh, portion it's of it? Roughly, or is it it's, it's roughly a DLC, um, a stripped down version so that you, the amount of communication you can uh, need to do can fit inside a single tweet. Gotcha. That's really cool. And even just as a way to demonstrate like a, a concept to people, because I think there's still a lot of people that are into the Bitcoin space that have no idea that we do have these, uh, I hate to say the phrase, but like smart contracts type capability on Bitcoin. And it, it's certainly growing. And there's already a lot of pretty useful stuff that we can do with it. So even just as a proof of concept, if people didn't like use it a whole lot, that's fair enough. But it's nice for them to be able to see what is actually possible. Yeah, absolutely. That's sort of the way I'm doing it. Um, I, I, what I need to figure out is how to actually, ex it's, it's a good way of rhetorically explaining to people that we can pretty much do on Bitcoin whatever we want. And it's actually more efficient than on any other kind of platform. That kind of thing would be very difficult on Ethereum or other things uh, to do it in such a way in two tweets. Um, and you would leave a bigger blockchain fingerprint and it would be less private uh, as well. So it's like actually Bitcoin is pretty close to optimal for most mm. protocols. Um, it's just the the engineering that you require to reach that optimum is harder, much more limited scope for the people to do it. Um, and you, those people do not intersect with people who can make good user interfaces. So it's actually <laughs> like a human, human problem. Uh, the technical problem, you know, a human mapping the humans to the technical problem. The the system itself is capable of doing absolutely everything that you could actually mean reasonably want to do, in my opinion. I mean, there are some exceptions, like we could not do algorithmic stable coins, but I think that that's probably a good thing because they suck. Like exactly. all the things you could, they, you couldn't do, you can't do, um, suck. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably a good filter as well, actually. And you're right. So people either need to upskill themselves in command line interface, or I guess we need more good uh, kind of UX UI designers to step into the space and make some of the technical stuff more accessible to people that want to. Um, yeah. want I mean, to it's definitely it. the latter thing. We don't yeah. need to upskill people using command line faces. It's a bit much to ask. I think it's a uh, yeah. True. Is there a reason that you developed uh, your wallet to do this and couldn't use something like, um, I guess, the CLI of Bitcoin Core? Like, I, I'm not really totally sure how, how they would differ. I guess Bitcoin Core is, isn't a node, but it's got a wallet built into it. But yeah, could you have done that or is having yeah, your own? Yeah, you could. And some people sort of do that with their protocols. I'm not a fan of it. Um, I don't want you to have to run Bitcoin Core to do this. So that's, I mean, one thing it uses, it uses the mempool.space API to like track your wallet, which oh, is no. not good for privacy. Um, but but it just experimenting. means working right away, you know. Very true. And you and can also run your own uh, Explorer instance, which is something that some people do and have it fully self-sovereign. Uh, or uh, in the future, hopefully Electrum. I'll be able to get Electrum working and working on similar things right now. That's cool. Just gives people uh, a few more options and doesn't restrict them to using yeah that sort of standard uh, Bitcoin Core implementation. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm thinking of getting ridding, rid of the betting thing. So I pretty much exhausted the usefulness of that protocol in terms of what I can learn from it. So I'm thinking of removing the betting uh, thing from it and more focusing on a more like just a fully featured command line wallet to do basic Bitcoin things like uh, 
and especially integrating the future developments or the things we're able to do now with the Schnorr and Taproot into creating the ideal Schnorr Taproot uh, wallet butt on the command line. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, is that uh, would that be linking into Frost? Because I'm guessing that uses yeah Schnorr and Taproot. Exactly. Yeah. So Frost is a new way of doing multi signatures, which uses uh, Schnorr signatures, threshold Schnorr signatures. It's a thre threshold Schnorr signature protocol, which means you can do those two of threes or three of fives on with a single public key. So you do not put the public keys involved in the three of fives on the blockchain. It looks to everyone else, it looks like a normal single public key. And that's extremely advantageous for many, many reasons, both for yourself and your own privacy, but also uh, for the blockchain, uh, you know, itself, because we'd have much fewer like uh, bespoke scripts being revealed and much, uh, much more effective privacy. The, pri the effectiveness of privacy techniques sort of going forward will sort of depend on the proportion of people that adopt Schnorr. And so if people are still using um, multi-sig with scripts uh, all the time, it sort of weakens everyone's privacy, not just your own privacy. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense because you're kind of hiding in in a non-set. So I guess if you have all transactions hypothetically if all transactions look the same on the bitcoin network that would be great for privacy because if we had yeah multi-signature setups or even uh, coin swaps or coin joins or something like that that all looked exactly the same it would be impossible to know when someone's doing a privacy conscious transaction versus not exactly uh, not i mean coin we're going to probably talk about coin joins a little bit later hopefully about when we talk about lightning privacy and stuff but the one thing that really sucks about coin joins is that if you you know if you're using a three or five multi-sig um, and you're the only one who does, you spend that into a coin join and then you get it out in another three or five multi-sig because that's your security setup. Well, it's very, very obvious to link your incoming and outgoing uh, you know, coins that way. So, yeah. That's true. And we'll probably, we'll definitely talk about the lightning side of things as well. But something that I think a lot of people uh, misunderstand with lightning is that there is an on-chain footprint for that too. Like whenever you open up a channel, it's a, a two of two multi-sig transaction. So you can kind of have a look over the network and see how many two of two multi-sig transactions are in existence. And that would probably be a pretty good ballpark figure of the amount of lightning channels that are open at the moment. And of course, if some of them are publicized or like made public because they're announced, then you can kind of do a process of elimination and find out how many are, are private how many are you know would you want to maybe look into to get more detail about so it it does give away a lot having a, a footprint like that or a fingerprint like that on chain exactly and so lightning will be getting rid of this fingerprint um some of that the fingerprint that you just described you'll be getting rid of it and so it'd be great if we could get rid of it for wallets as well and so we're working on um i'm working on frost uh, with a few other people to try and get that in you know demo it in gun but try and then try and get into many other many other wallets as possible, I guess. Yeah, true. I think another thing here that's probably in parallel is the data used on chain, which means uh, something like Schnorr signatures are going to have just like less of a, a data load on chain, which is better for, I would say, decentralization because it means nodes are, are less data heavy. Um, you can fit more into blocks. People are going to be paying a little bit less for their transaction fees. So there's sort of like a yeah convenience or a fee benefit as well as just an overall uh, not kind of congesting the chain when we don't need to. Yeah, the beauty of it, we still have, um, we have an incentive for better privacy. The incentives are aligned for cheaper transactions and privacy as well. So that's um, a really strong feature of Bitcoin, you can say. 
Yeah, very true. For anyone who's listening who doesn't uh, can't kind of visualize this or isn't really sure what we're talking about exactly with say Schnorr signatures versus how a signature might normally look on chain, I'll probably I'll try to describe it and then uh, let me know if I've I've done that right or wrong, Lloyd. <laughs> so at the moment, say if you have a multi-signature transaction on chain, um, quite a lot of detail about the well the fact that it's multi-signature, um, the type of options that you could have, as in whether it's a, a two of two multi-sig or a two of three or a three of five, all of that detail is somewhat presentable on chain, which means an onlooker could really see that and at least know what kind of multi-signature type contract or type transaction that you're performing. Now, it's not just about multi-signature. There's other uh, types of transactions we can do as well where we leak that information, but let's just sort of focus on multi-sig for now. With, say, Schnorr signatures um, as an alternative, it would look like look like any other transaction. It would be unclear how many signers are required to say uh, sign that transaction. It would be unclear if there's any other kind of options um, embedded within that that contract or that script. And so all of a sudden you've gained a bit of privacy because someone on looking doesn't know the kind of transaction that you're performing, doesn't know the other options that would be there. What I mean by other options as an example would be, say you might have a, a two of three multi-sig, but then you might have something else that says if certain amount of time goes past, then we can actually have say like a, a one of three multi-sig type transaction. And if you're signing that transaction, kind of all that detail needs to be put in there. Whereas with the Schnorr signature, none of that detail really needs to be put into there. It's just a signal signature. I'm not sure yeah, if that makes uh, sense the way I've described that. That's, but. Uh, the way that when you bring up a, like a really interesting point, which actually which actually demonstrates the power of not just Schnorr signatures, but of Taproot. So Schnorr signatures allow us to make um, a single signature that looks like a normal signature, but it actually reflects some committee that created that signature, right? So we can, we say we get key aggregation, which means we have a single key. And then we, the, the signatures that may, are made in that single key look like just a single person signed them, but they could have been from a three out of five, three out of three, or one out of three or whatever. Okay, so that's that's one aspect of it. And that's, that's the frost aspect, okay? Mm. It's the, um, but then you have another aspect where you want, maybe want these bespoke conditions where you have a time locks, right? So time locks are a very particular thing. Now you could do this time lock thing you described um, by pre-signing transactions. So signing a transaction that uh, and giving it around to like you said a one of three, right? So you could you as like the two out of three or the committee that is has a two out of three on the main uh, main spending path could say, listen, we want any one of us to spend it after you know, seven days. Um, so we create a transaction and give it to each of us, but it, it is encumbered by this time lock. Okay. So that will be able to be spent after some time. Hmm. But uh, another way we can do it with less, uh, less interaction would be to simply put the rules um, in Bitcoin script. Okay. And that way we wouldn't have to remember the transaction which is an important point, right? Uh, we, with this transaction, we all got to spend it uh, after seven days, we would have to recall that transaction, remember the signature on that transaction in particular and store it in a database. If you lose data on your computer, or whatever, you're not gonna be able to take that transaction anymore. So mm -hmm. one way we thing we can do to reduce interaction um, and reduce the, the storage requirement is to use Bitcoin scripting language but inside taproot, right? So a taproot 
key uh, spend, a script path spend, which means we would have that script inside there, inside that public key. Okay, so the public key would look like a normal public key. It is actually being spent by two of three, but it, in addition to this two of three, it also has embedded in it a script. And this is committed to by the public key. No one can see that commitment to the, that, that those rules. Okay, the, the, the rules will be in the script, especially this time lock rule will be there in the script. And so if we need to use this emergency, you know, after seven days um, spending thing, we'll one each one of us will just be able to reveal the script uh to and spend and spend that output but only in that emergency condition if we never use the emergency condition no one will see uh that fingerprint on the blockchain and and otherwise it will and so it will look just like a normal public key and a normal signature if we use the two out of three path but we need the emergency path then you start then and then and only then are you able to fingerprint this and say ah this must be this kind of wallet or this kind of thing doing this one of three after seven days kind of thing uh, gotcha on the blockchain yeah that makes sense and i like an example that's popped into mind which is a very kind of niche example but it's one that does come up a lot is things like a five dollar wrench attack right and and people often say things like ah oh, if I was being threatened with a five dollar wrench attack, I would just tell them that I had that Bitcoin in a multi-sig setup, so they couldn't possibly ever get it. However, if you're facing a relatively sophisticated five dollar wrench attacker, you might find that they have already seen your transactions on chain, and they will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that actually you are not sitting in a multi-signature transaction. You have just a very basic. Um, simple spend Bitcoin transaction leading to your funds. Whereas, say, in the world of, you know, taproot nor signatures, what we're talking about now, everything would look pretty much the same. So there is some level of plausible deniability about what kind of uh, rules or stipulations have been set to how your Bitcoin can be spent, whether it's in like a, yeah, a multi-sig type setup, whether there's a time lock to it. And so that's just like one niche example, but it's something for people to be able to get their heads around. It's less clear from anyone looking on chain who might even know which UTXOs or Bitcoin belongs to you. Um, it would be less clear for them what kind of uh, transaction rules are set around it. Yeah, that's an interesting point. With this $5 wrench attack, I always imagine uh, that the $5 wrench attacker would first extract from you uh, something like the wallet or the software you use to track your wallet, which doesn't need your keys, I guess. And then they would be able to see all your UTXOs and stuff. Uh, and so the trick there is then how do you how do you make sure that the attacker cannot see um, the configuration that you only use single SIG? Because that will maybe left in your wallet somehow, right? Or but, but perhaps not, though. But we could do it. Uh, we've got to just make sure from a software engineering perspective that we keep it secret the actual configuration even on the user's computer and then they they themselves know it and then can bring it out when they need to spend only i hope yeah that's a good point is any of that actually being worked on or is that more just like a conceptual idea that we should probably build into it in software no that's just the point that i a self-note that i yeah. made to myself with respect to this yeah you're very right yeah so are there any other uh, benefits of, say, the Frost protocol over um, either other multi-signature protocols that are available right now, um, or even just, you know, basic sort of signal signature setups? It is pretty much uh, all down to the data and the privacy. That's all the advantages you get. Oh, actually, there is a new one. Okay, I'll tell you about the new one that I that I was just pointed out by someone on on Signal. And they told, they point, they asked me the question, hey, 
So with this, you know, you have this Unchained Capital and Casa stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Where they offer like a multi-sig service and yep. quite a few people use those things, I think. With that, currently, those guys all know what your, all your transactions. Uh, just a necessary part of how the outputs are constructed. Those guys have a, have a key in the thing, right? Have a key in the multi-sig. And whenever you spend it, uh, they're going to see, ah, there's my key on chain, right? Even if you don't use their key, okay? So one th interesting thing that can happen with uh, Schnorr and Taproot is that we could keep every spend you make could not be visible to those guys who you have, let's say we do a two or three and the, the third key is with them, even though they have the third key, they can't track your transactions. They only are able to, see, would they only be able to see the transaction if you needed their help. Mm, that's a good point. Because yeah, otherwise, even if you're not using their node, for example, they can just follow on chain what is happening. Um, yep. And so is this something that's mainly possible via Frost or is it, is it something that it's actually, yeah, it's, that's a really, really good question. Because the first question I asked is like, why can't we just do that right now? Mm. What is the problem? Because he, although the key, they do have a key in the multi-sig, perhaps that key could be somewhat uh, manipulated. So you couldn't exactly tell unless you reveal, say, actually, guys, I need your help. Uh, this is actually your key in the multi-sig. Um, I've just tweaked it by a bit. And it's uh, here's how you can recover the secret key or whatever. Um, to so but yeah so this is the question and why couldn't we do it today and it turns out that it's a i think you cannot okay i'm pretty sure you cannot because of a low level cryptographic detail of ecdsa okay mm -hmm. so ecdsa it is very dangerous to sign things uh for other people uh based on uh without knowing the exact key or it, it is very, yeah so if you were to ask someone to sign something with ECDSA and you were to say, listen, um, guy, this is just your key. Listen, this is your main key here and just tweaked by a little bit. So just add this tweak to your key um, and then we'll sign you sign with that for my, to help me out of uh, my situation where I've lost one of my devices. This could actually you could manipulate whatever you tell them to be able to get other signatures. OK, so, you know, uh, you know, maybe there are more special rules about signing large amounts and you like you want them to sign uh, you have a limit like up to a million sats then you just whenever i request to sign just go ahead but if it's more than a million sats you should wait seven days and send me an email or whatever right so this would mean that they could be pretending to ask for the signature on the million sats but actually get a signature on a different transaction ah that um, makes sense by, by providing so, a different tweak to the key that actually... Yeah, just because of the algebraic way ECDSA is arranged, okay? But with Schnorr, it, you just uh, you can tell them the tweak. And the good thing is about Schnorr, the, the key is, part, is sort of um, hashed as part of the signing. And so any if you tweak and you say, this is your key, it'll only be valid for that key, okay? So the user cannot be scammed. Um, by someone who's, you know, uh, got one of their keys and is trying to steal all of their funds in this case. They will be able to steal up to the limit the user has specified in this case um, with one of the keys, right? That so that's, the, 
that's the that's just an algebraic advantage of Schnorr signatures that happens to it applies to frost. It might mean it's optimal to use this trick using frost because then you have um, your your transactions look like any other transactions. And so the so this third party as is everyone else is really in the dark about your wallet. They cannot see anything until you ask them to do something. Yeah. That's right. Is the reason. I've heard a bit of trivia recently, and I just want to run it past you. Is the reason that we're now moving to Schnorr signatures rather than uh, ECDSA, which is like the elliptic curve uh, cryptography, if anyone doesn't know what that acronym means, um, is it because Schnorr was originally something like proprietary? Like it, it, it wasn't really adopted fairly early on or worked on fairly early on because ECDSA was, um, I guess, kind of free and open source in the traditional sense, whereas Schnorr was proprietary or had some level of limitation it had, a patent. It. it had a patent on it patent yeah that's that's the word yeah. i'm probably looking for and now that is that's kind of over which means that it can be used and modified or, or whatever else and therefore that's why we're putting it into to place now because i'm sure this is a question sometimes people have is like well if it's so good why are we just using it now why don't we start this 13 years ago yeah i mean i think work i mean work on schnorr signatures really did it was a long time ago that people started working on it what now? The question is like before Bitcoin, why wasn't it used? And this is the reason. Yeah, for gotcha. sure. That's the reason. But I mean, if Satoshi had chosen Schnorr signatures at the beginning somehow and was like competent enough and confident enough to implement things correctly and, um, you know, just violated the patent frequently, it could have been a good decision. <laughs> true, yeah. Yeah. Hey, it would have been possible as well, being an anonymous or pseudonymous inventor. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe GitHub. I don't know. I don't know what patents like. Does GitHub have to remove the thing if it's using the patent or not? Or is it the users who have to get? The, I don't know how it works. Likewise. So maybe it's not a good decision. I'm not a patent lawyer. And the best thing to, with patents is not to put them on anything, um, especially not software and especially not mathematics. So that's the, the big the big mistake. Well, yeah, if you want things to be distributed, used, and worked on, it would not make sense to, to lock it down in that way. But either Absolutely. way, here we are. It we have strong signatures. <laughs> yeah, it was from a time, a, a bygone era, I think, when cryptography was... Uh, so the, the paper, name of the paper that, Sh that Klaus P. Schnorr published is um, something to do with smart cards, right? So he's like, this would be if, uh, an efficient signature to put inside a smart card. When you tap it, it'll make a signature or something like that. Mm. Or however smart cards work, I don't even know what the definition of a smart card was back then. Um, but yeah, that was sort of the idea. Uh, and you know, patenting, you know, physical device, I guess, or something you use in the physical device sort of makes sense if you're trying to sell some physical devices. So give give Schnorr his credit or give him a break on the whole thing. But um, yeah, it turns out that Schnorr, uh, what he came up with was sort of like this fundamental mathematical structure um, that was extremely useful, not just um, in signatures, actually, is extremely useful mathematical structure everywhere. Schnorr signatures just happen to be the most uh, practical example of it, but we use it in all kinds of zero knowledge proofs as well, uh, the same kind of structure. And so it was a really a shame that he painted it, this thing. Yeah, that's right. I Look, I, I have no idea of the history of him, but is he even still alive now? He is. He, he is. Uh, that's, that's yeah, yeah. At least he can see this coming. There was some drama. On, there was some drama on Twitter about him some some years ago. I don't remember how long it was—a year ago or more—where uh, he sort of claimed to have cracked RSA, uh, um, uh, but he he had not. So mm. that's, unfortunately, he had not. People uh, were a bit worried because he's a, a bit of a, a, a smart guy, I guess. You would think it uh, comes from a credible source. Maybe he's onto something. Yeah. Yeah, but I think uh, I think not. He made an error in his analysis. Yeah.
guess that happens with maths. You get to forget to carry a one or something like that, carry a zero. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious, are there other points on uh, Frost multi-sig protocol that you'd like to discuss or, or tease? No, uh, we have on our, we have a Bitcoin Sydney Socratic where we did like a big Socratic on them with Jesse Posner, who's one of the other people working on Frost implementations. And we sort of had a very long discussion about all the implications there will be for users. Probably the thing we didn't discuss is the downsides to the thing, the low level technical downsides that make things a bit trickier. Um, to do Frost, a um, bit more interactivity. You need to, all the devices need to share some data upfront uh, before you do any signing. Um, but you can do that at the beginning when you generate your key, but you sort of have to decide how many signatures you're gonna wanna do, maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand, doesn't really matter, you can do thousands. Um, you know, depending on the hardware devices and stuff. So you'll be able to do a thousand signatures before you sort of have to recharge your batteries, your data batteries and reshare some stuff. So there's some low level technical um, uh, inconveniences to the protocol that hopefully from a user perspective, there is nothing at all that is more inconvenient about Frost and it's just strictly better. Gotcha. So yeah, it kind of has a bit more of that coordination required when doing the initial setup and then depending yeah. on yeah, how, how much it's used over time. Yeah. yeah. How how long is a piece of string is probably the answer to this question, but what would users expect in regards to, say, timeframes on seeing something kind of usable or, or testable? I mean, I, I think it is testable now already um, for kind of more advanced users, but say just like a general user, when would they yeah, expect? Yeah, it's not even really testable for advanced users at the moment. Um, it, we, had, we did a demo of it in GUN. We sort of implemented it into GUN, uh, but it's not... Uh, released yet because we were on you know is the first first uh, pre-alpha kind of thing and we're work there a specification is sort of in the works now uh, first i think we have to get the musig specification finished which is the the uh the 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 three of three or like the without a threshold right so it's like a three of three or four of four or five of five this uh, protocol which is a bit uh, simpler we have to spe we're specifying that and that's going to be used in lightning and that's what's going to make lightning um not not be identified not fingerprint the blockchain right the the, the channel outputs will not fingerprint the blockchain after we get musig because you can do the, the two of two that each channel requires uh without um a explicit two of two but rather a single public key which actually requires both uh, interaction from both parties to spend so the musig one will come first the frost one will come after that uh, we'll probably have something in gun before the frost one is finished but uh, other for other wallets the wallets you already use for that to for them to get frost will probably take some it depends on how um let's say by the end of the year hopefully frost is specified and then uh, depends on uh before the end of the year let's say in three three or four months at the max and then it depends on your particular implementation how quickly they can adopt it, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's still uh, pretty, pretty close to come. I feel pretty proud, even though I didn't really do anything, um, of seeing the very first Frost multi-sig transaction, which uh, Nick performed in demo at the Bitcoin Bush Bash about well, maybe three or so months ago, earlier in the year. Yeah, that's really right. Cool to see. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll, I mean, people should uh, keep an eye out for it. I'll make sure I, uh, I post up info about Frost in the show notes, um, as well as Gun as well and look we can always sort of circle back to that if uh if it kind of comes back up as a tangent in what yeah. we kind of move to next but i figure maybe we jump into lightning network privacy and, and talk a bit about that yeah cool so this is a 
this is a big topic. <laughs> I don't I don't know the best way to go about this, but I, I have some general headings and I have some subheadings. And so the general headings are general pros and cons of Lightning Network privacy versus on-chain. Uh, I've got some privacy improvements that are coming to Lightning soon that we can look forward to, as well as perhaps some practical strategies for people. Okay. Now, so let's uh, before you. Before, yep. I suggest instead of doing this uh, list, uh -huh. let us uh, talk about how to think about privacy first. Yes, uh, and 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 Lightning because uh, pros and cons are a little they're a little difficult to evaluate. But we can we can talk about that. We can evaluate them after we've sort of got the mental tools to think about Lightning privacy. Absolutely, so, that sounds like a good way. Does to that make sense? Privacy. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and then you can forget about the pros and cons checklist and sort of just do the work yourself to figure out what if if what you're doing is private. Yeah. So what I would like to think about first is uh, where first you have on-chain privacy, obviously. Okay. So first you have to think about um, your channel, your channel that you open. Where are the coins coming from, and what are the history of those coins? Okay. Um, your your solution might be, or your your approach might be to put get peace of mind with do coin joins before you do it, and that may be some users capable of that. But of course, we've mentioned that Lightning currently leaves a fingerprint anyway, and so if you're doing that a lot and then coin joining the 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 result of your channel again to open a new channel, you may uh, still be obvious because the input will be, look like a Lightning channel to the coin join, the output will look like a Lightning channel. And so you've got to just keep in mind, no matter what you do, there is going to be some kind of history associated with the inputs to that channel, okay? Uh, so if you're providing the inputs. Now, once you've got a channel, uh, Let's let's take the simplest example. You want to purchase something on Lightning, or perhaps you want to receive some coins on Lightning. So you have a channel, and perhaps you make the channel uh, with the person you're interacting with, right? So I want to buy a hat from the Blockstream store. So I open up uh, a channel with the Blockstream store. Uh, this might seem like the most uh, private way to go about making uh, off-chain payments because maybe you can you can make several payments. Uh, and then you could, you, after you know, making buying a hat or whatever, you could also make payments outside, you know, through that node to other nodes on the network, right? So, but putting aside the aside the network for now, where we have a direct channel with the Blockstream store. Now, the Blockstream store uh, will learn, I guess, our our shipping address or some mm -hmm. other metadata through our interaction. And now, keep in mind that the Blockstream store is now knows your your UTXO history as well, right? So we can sort of seize uh, how you got to fund the channel with them, right? So that's important to keep in mind. Uh, so they they themselves are perhaps getting some, maybe they even, they do the full KYC stuff. So probably they ask for your name and stuff. You can give them fake information or whatever, but you wouldn't need a delivery address. And so they're saying that someone who wants to get something delivered to this address had this coin history, okay? And that, that uh, probably the Blockstream people are not going to use that for anything whatsoever and delete that from their uh, servers as soon as possible. But you can imagine that if they were malicious, that they could be working with others and to tell others about what this information, what what your coin history is. Uh, this someone of this who gets things delivered to this address has this coin history, and you, they can go back and sort of work backwards and sort of try and heuristically identify your wallet based on that, which is a really um, strong. You know, bit of metadata. 
Okay, so and we, so we and I want to keep in mind there are a lot of other things to do with privacy to do with that, but we're we're not putting the network. We're pretending like we just don't even have a lightning network. We just make channels with people mm. and do things directly with them in our channels. So the the lightning guys will learn uh, our coin history. So let's bring in the network side of things. So let's rather than make a channel directly to the lightning people, uh, the the blockstream people. Uh, pardon me. We make instead a channel to some kind of uh, routing node on the Lightning network, and now uh, the first thing we've got to assume here is we're doing what we're going to do is create a, no, uh, a channel that is not advertised. Okay, so the Lightning network has a kind of a routing table, if you like, or they share each other's channels with each other. Um, each node, when they create a channel, if it's a public channel, uh, they will. Uh, or an announced channel, they will tell everyone else about it so that their payments may be made through that channel. Okay, so we're not going to do that though. We're going to make a the the Blockstream store has let's say announced its channel, but with a with some let's say directly with the node that we are opening a channel with. So we know we'll be able to make a payment straight through this node straight to the Blockstream store, and we have not announced our channel, so we've kept our channel secret. Um, and let's pretend uh, additionally that we, uh, you know, we're in the future and we're using Musig, so no one can see our channel on chain. It looks like any other output, right? Mm -hmm. So any other Schnorr output. So let's just assume that. Though that's not true for now, it'll be true in the future. And so it's best to think about things and not bring the complications of, you know, being able to see the Lightning Channel, um, you know, fingerprint it on the blockchain. So it's it's hidden. It looks like any other Schnorr transaction. It's going to some address, but it's secretly a Lightning Channel. Okay. So is your privacy uh, better in this case than it was before when you had some th something directly uh, with the Blockstream store. Well, let's let's think about it, right? So I now make a payment for my hat to the Blockstream store. Now the hat is worth a certain amount of satoshis. Now the Blockstream store does not learn my channel, uh, you know, his my my coin history, right? The 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 node that I open the channel with does though. Mm -hmm. Um, and they can tell also that I just bought a hat because the hat is that price at this moment, right? If they were very active, right, on spying on me. And so they now actually, our privacy got a little bit worse, I would say, unless, I mean, unless you really want to hide stuff from the Blockstream store, right? So but, uh, now the Blockstream store uh, knows that someone got a hat to this address, which is not leaving, not leaving an on-chain, they're not getting on-chain information, but they know that someone at this address is a Bitcoiner. Now this node uh, does not know the address, but they do know the coin history and they know that someone with that coin history is buying a hat from the Blockstream store. Mm. Um, so it, it, it may have gotten better. Um, it's, now it definitely did get better if that node is not leaking your information to anyone or that is not run by a chain surveillance company, right? But if it is, then probably things just got worse. Uh, so the, 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 you still have to make some kind of judgment about who you open channels with. Now, the other thing is that the, the, although the, the privacy definitely got worse for the Blockstream store, right? Because now the Blockstream store is sort of leaking some purchase. It knows that a hat was bought on this date this this no intermediary knows because you introduce an intermediary there now this may not be important information but it's sort of just this is the mental tools you should go through when you're thinking about how you're you're set up and how it relates to other people like am i getting more privacy this way or not um you know so this is something now 
this is something to think about now if we move forward it's like how can we get more privacy and you this is the real the point i want to make about the lightning network here and this is a crucial one is that you kind of get more privacy by introducing more intermediaries right so if i introduce another intermediary um, into the thing that and instead of paying just through one intermediary to the to the to the blockstream store i have two now well the the intermediary the the first one i pay to does not know it's going to be a hat because it doesn't know that it's going to the blockstream stores channel right so it could just be something else on the lightning network that happens to be worth the same amount as a hat mm. um right so it's sort of uh now we've improved our privacy by introducing more intermediaries right and that's the crucial uh thing uh, is the longer the path the pro potentially the more privacy you get uh so uh probably the most important thing for your privacy will be how secret the people you have channels with or how private they keep their information. Do they, you know, follow best practices, delete their payment information uh, with payments, right? Or when they close channels, they get rid they're making sure they have an implementation that deletes that stuff mm. uh, once it's gone. And they're, you know, just not run by a chain surveillance company. Please, that's the that's probably the most important thing. Open up channels with people who do not run chain surveillance companies, okay? And then um, if you and the Blockstream store both do that, then you're doing pretty well. Um, but either one of you doing that, succeeding at that will be beneficial to probably both of you. And so that's probably the main thing is that you, the more intermediaries you pass through, the more expensive it is. And also um, the other downside of that approach or that situation is that it's more likely to fail, right? The more intermediaries you pass the payment through, the more likely the payment is to fail. Um, so it's now, like a, yeah, trade-off with convenience versus privacy, which is, I guess, the the, the age-old uh, spectrum for uh, privacy, really, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yes, sort of, but maybe we can do better. So this is the if I were to lead into research, that's where I would lead into. So potentially, this we can get rid of this trade-off in the lightning network and not make it you know no hops improve privacy but um make payments reliability independent of the number of hops or not uh, the privacy not dependent on the number mm. of hops you do and i guess i don't want to say like just route your payments through heaps a bunch of hops uh to you know to get more privacy because actually after a point the more intermediaries you introduce into the thing uh the worse your privacy will get just because there's more intermediaries that had knew about the payment right so it's sort of like um the most important thing is that the nodes you open channel with are not leaking your information to chain surveillance companies not selling it and um probably that's just the most important key thing but think about you know apply this thinking uh when you're thinking about your lightning channels and the payments and the privacy. What is the character of the privacy you're actually getting? It's just, it's sort of like if you manage to route through somebody who does not let, if you keep your channel unannounced and all your channels unannounced, and that's probably when we go through the practical tips, probably that's uh, one of the keep all your channels unannounced. In other words, you have a user kind of lightning channels that you, that you just uh, you use to make payments and you do not announce any of the channels on that thing you just like your personal funds that you're using to make payments keep them all unannounced um, and make sure they're all with uh nodes that you think you speculate are not um leaking information and you can do pretty well with that i think that makes sense and i guess 
uh, kind of reflecting on a couple of points there that that I can kind of extract is that, you know, if you have multiple parties in your route to the Blockstream store, for example, you are distributing the trust to some degree that you're not being monitored. And it also makes it more difficult for them to piece together how much is being spent to whom and for what. Uh, but mm. the other point there is that the more people that you have involved, well, the more likely there is going to be someone on there that is surveilling for malicious malicious reasons or otherwise. And of course, if you have a couple of those people or, or actors in that chain that you're routing through, it gives them a chance to kind of correlate your data a bit more reliably. Um, does that kind of make sense? Like the the more malicious people that you have on your route, the the less private your uh, your transaction is going to be. So you don't want to just keep adding more and more and more hops to the route because you're kind of probability speaking, adding there to be a more potential malicious actor that can then perhaps even uh, corroborate with another malicious actor to correlate that information. Yeah, yeah this corroboration is a bit of a problem as well uh, because essentially like you're basically, it's the same as just sending through a single malicious actor directly to your target if both the the first hop and the last hop are malicious so all the yes. ones in the middle don't really matter um, after that so that's what i would probably say is that you don't need to just send things through multiple hops two hops is sort of good uh, in general in case one of them is spying the second one maybe not be spying um it, it doesn't really help too much after two hops i would say if, you, if the first and the last are uh you know um malicious you're in trouble there is some proposal that we can make that improve that uh you know with lightning going forward with schnorr uh, by making the payment hash different at each hop uh, using the uh, ptlc's instead of htlc's you probably have heard about that um, i'm a little bit skeptical that this is actually going to improve things and skeptical that it is not um introducing new attacks so uh, I, have a pro I have a page on Bitcoin problems about that. Uh, the, the reason is that, you know, if the amounts are the same and the time locks sort of are correlatable, you can still make a pretty good guess about it, even if the payment hash is not the same. Yeah. You know, because the, the, obviously or you can change things, but if the, the thing you're buying is still that much money, well, you know, it sort of can, can correlate it with each other, each hop. Uh, the first and the last hops can still say this is probably the, the same payment. That's true. And I guess a, a way, a parallel for people to look at it, um, I guess it's not even a parallel, it's, it's a direct thing. So if anyone is aware of things like correlation attacks or, or timing attacks on, say, the Tor network, like if an entry and exit node are captured, all of a sudden the data being transferred between the two can be correlated. Um, or even the fact that someone is capturing some of that data, they can do timing attacks to find out like where you are in the world, geolocation, that kind of thing. The same thing really yeah. applies to the Lightning Network because it uses Tor routing to get through the nodes in the first place. So if anyone's aware yeah. of that attack vector for the Tor Network, the same thing applies to the Lightning Network as well. Yeah, I think that's just a really good analogy. I mean, it depends on if how well you understand Tor, but yeah, the, 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 Tor and Lightning have similar similar trade-offs in that uh, lightning actually has some extra attacks that you cannot do against tor um i'm sure there are tor attacks against tor that you can't do against lightning too that are specific to the tcpip stack and how things work but the one you you uh, the one that happens with lightning which has happened more recently is i mentioned you should keep your channels unannounced right mm. 
Um, but some people uh, have been tricking uh, Lightning nodes that are, let's say, intermediaries to revealing their uh, unannounced channels just by trying to send payments to the unannounced channel. Um, and the, the, unannounced, the, the intermediary there will, uh, you know, sort of give a different error depending on if the channel exists, like does dummy payments, and will give a different error if the channel exists or does not exist there at that node. And so you just sort of pay, make a bunch of payments to a bunch of different nodes trying to find out where that unannounced channel actually is. Um, and so that allows you to figure out where the unannounced channel is and then potentially um, you know, better understand uh, what you're doing and where payments come from and then get the yeah, get more information about the uh, the use the on-chain. That's something we probably haven't talked about. How do you link the on-chain heuristics to the off-chain heuristics? But hopefully, anyway, the, 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 the point is that these attacks Practically, these kind of attacks are exist, exist at the moment. People are fixing them, okay? So they're, they're going to be fixed, and hopefully these error messages and stuff, it becomes much harder to find the unannounced channels. And the un, if the unannounced channels are, um, you know, taproot, Schnorr channel, then they look like any other thing on the blockchain. So hopefully it becomes more difficult to, uh, to discover them. But there is problems with uh, the node, uh, the... This, uh, this node that you have the channel with, um, the coins that came into that channel and will that will uh, that settle out of that channel, the, the node will probably use those, those coins and make a new channel that may be public and announced. And then you know uh, if you had a theory that you this channel this or this this uh, this paint this UTXO happened to be your lightning channel, right? or happen to be a lightning channel, they can sort of confirm this theory by looking at what happens with the coins after that, because then the coins get settled out of that channel, go into that node, new, a new nodes channel with one of the routing nodes channels, and then they announce that and say, here is a lightning channel. And now you know, can look at the history of that those coins and say, ah, that maybe perhaps the, the coins it came from was also a lightning channel, right? Um, and so that exchange or whatever who is using, working with Chainalysis who has provided those coins to you to fund your channel can say, ah, this guy's using the Lightning Network. Ah, you don't you know you need a license to do that or whatever. I don't know if you, I, I don't know if it happens to you, but I get exchanges emailing me and threatening to close my account because I coin joined uh, before the, going into them. And also if I coin join after withdrawing from them, they also threaten me. Um, so yeah, so maybe that becomes a thing with Lightning in the future. We don't know where we're going with this thing, yeah. That's right. How dare you look after your privacy in that way? That's uh, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. yeah, I think like all the points that you've touched on there really are reflected in the the kind of take home points um, that I was going to rattle off. So I think that's really good yeah. as background in terms of then getting our head around some kind of uh, these aren't strategies as such, but I think they'll they'll lead to strategies. I might just mm. rattle a few. I just, I just want to make another yeah, comment yeah. on that thing. Uh, it's really important. That's probably the, you can pretty much separate uh, lightning concerns, privacy concerns into two separate categories. One is uh, cross layer links. So you've got layer two funds, but they somehow get linked to the layer one funds. And the layer one funds privacy is not good. And so then the layer two funds privacy ends up not being so good. Um, that's probably like the first category. And 
we have some proposals to fix that a bit, um, to stop talking about channel IDs. So when you're when you send your payment, you're actually sending it through particular channels, and you're actually sort of saying you actually are saying which UTXO on chain, which channel on chain should be used to route this thing mm. to the routing nodes. This is this is not so good. This is really bad. Actually, you should just be saying which node you have to go to next to send the money, not uh, which actual on-chain point should you send the money through and this is sort of the reason these uh, attacks can exist because when you send these uh these probing attacks because you send and you say i want to send money to this uh, send an htlc to this channel id with this you know this utxo and you can even tell uh, probe whether a utxo is a lightning channel maybe by sending it around to a bunch of people and saying i'm sending a payment to this guy um with this this channel and may not be a lightning channel and if none of them respond with a certain error or an error that you know is like uh, is uh, indicates that it exists then you say oh maybe that isn't a lightning channel or but if they do then you know it is a lightning channel so this is a called a, like a cross layer link we've got something in the, the layer one that is leaked into the layer two and we don't want that thing there we want layer one to be layer one and layer two to be layer two once the funds get onto layer two they should be uncorrelatable to the layer you know the layer one things. So it's uh, removing those links at the protocol level. So we don't tell people about particular which channels to use um, really would improve things a lot. And so the problem is it becomes hard to to make a network like that because you're telling to, you if you just what if I just go and tell people I have all these channels to all these people, right? And I didn't have any. So the reason the cross-layer link exists is to prevent denial of service, to make sure the things actually exist on the blockchain before you tell other people about them so you don't spam everyone. So it's actually a denial of service concern, not nothing to do with the actual operation of the Lightning Network um, if everyone was honest, right? Uh, that's the that's one point is we have these denial of service concerns that lead to privacy being lost. But maybe we can defeat the denial of service in another way uh, without losing privacy. The other thing is the other category of lightning privacy is the payments of them, the payments by themselves, right? So this cross-layer link problem it does not let you make payment. It does not let you identify payments, but it does let you identify channels. And also those channels are associated with nodes and those nodes have IP addresses. So it mm -hmm. can be even worse than these cross-layer links can make privacy on lightning even worse, especially if you use an announced channel uh, than privacy with just on-chain funds, because now they also know your IP address, right? Because you've told them, this is where my Lightning node is, if it's not behind a Tor, uh, Tor hidden service. So that's the cross-layer link thing. That's right. Does that make sense? It, yeah, it absolutely does. It allows all sorts of uh, process of elimination to be undertaken by someone who wanted to yeah, surveil the network. And some of these things are necessary because you're right, it uh, prevents like a denial of service attack or even things like channel probing will allow you to be able to send a Lightning Network transaction without it failing frequently because it's already probed the, the route to say like, will this get to where it needs to go and how much is it going to cost? But of course, the downside to that is that allows things like brute force probing type uh, attacks where people then can glean things like channel balances or discover uh, private channels, um, especially yeah. if they have a lot of information of the publicly announced channels that they can just remove from their data set, as well as all the two of two on-chain transactions, which they can kind of then factor in to say, these are probably the kind of UTXOs that I want to query. And all of a sudden, it's like they have a very workable data set of only like 
a few thousand um, channels to probe or UTXOs to look for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's um, this uh, this cross layer links is really a key issue because instead of defeating chain analysis, we are saying kind of enhancing it. Yes. Uh, depending on how you do things and depend make, making if your channels are unannounced and we have Taproot and Schnorr and Musig 2 being used, then things are uh, quite a lot more difficult, but still they can still enhance their chain analysis to some extent. Now, the point of doing chain analysis is to identify particular payments, right? Not just like clustering addresses together, right? And so Lightning, you know, the advantage you get, although you somewhat enhance chain analysis, right? Depending on how you do things, you do will hopefully not let them identify particular payments. Okay, so yes, you've enhanced chain analysis, but you haven't necessarily leaked more information about your payments, and that's a really crucial thing, right? Because mm -hmm. the whole point of defeating chain analysis is, uh, you know, not making sure they can't see who you paid and how much you paid, right? And so if you somehow how enhance their heuristical tools but you still make your payments private then i mean that's a, that's a good thing on net right for you absolutely so that's the the other category is identifying payments actually made um we've talked a bit about like how to think about how the rest the other the parts of the network will see the payments and so it's sort of like just make try and do your best with making sure the people you have channels with are keeping your unannounced channels private and keeping um, you know, up to date with their software so they don't have these leaking this stuff and, and, and themselves not run by these chain analysis people, right? So if you do that, then but there are still some ways to identify some, some payments being made. For example, um, even if your guy is honest, we do the balance probing attacks like you just mentioned, right? To figure out what the balance is of the, the channels because when they change, then you know a payment has been made through them. So if mm -hmm. this guy manages... We mentioned, right, let's say we have an intermediary node with a Blockstream store or, or you know, even if we have a direct channel with a Blockstream store, like let's say we have a direct channel with a Blockstream store and we can make a little transaction privately, right? The Blockstream store is keeping everything private um, and uh, we've uh, updated our channels, but the balance has changed and perhaps this information can leak to someone and what they do is they pay me. Um, they pay or they pay the whoever's paying the Blockstream store, let's say it's me, and they, they pay me. Um, different amounts and they try and see which uh, what will go through my channel, right? If they could see before what would have went gone through my channel, can they, um, you know, see it afterwards? Now, it shouldn't, it shouldn't work in practice, that, that kind of attack. But if we add an, uh, because your node will just flat out reject, reject the payments and not leak information, unless there's a bug, right? Unless there's an implementation problem or something that they leak the balance, even if they're the destination. But if we do an intermediary node and make a, do probing from there, maybe we can see that the balance changed on my channel to the intermediary and the balance changed on the intermediary, intermediary's channel to the destination. Mm. Now this, in order to do this, I think you will need to be a routing node, like your node will be, need to be public and be a routing node. Or as I said, I think that that in theory, you would need to do that because um, otherwise your node will just reject stuff it doesn't um, it doesn't know about. But you can see uh, if this is why the unannounced thing is probably important, but you can see how if there is errors or, you know, ways of differentiating things with errors, you can also leak that information and, and um, figure out what a payment was made, even though you're not were not involved in the payment. So that's a really another thing that has to be you know, gotten right. Let's say, um, is is this stuff? That's true. That's true. I want to maybe and even let's say let's say uh, just the 
furthermore, like the Blockstream store, he has a public channel and does route things. And so people are going to be able, they'll, you should be able to, if you can do an effective attack there, regardless of error messages, just by checking the balances, you should be able to tell uh, when someone bought a hat, if not who they, they uh, who bought it, just when they bought certain items from the store, right? That's right. So I guess we could say on the sender side, there is, with these caveats in mind, you know, making sure that you're choosing intermediaries to route through and multiple intermediaries rather than just directly routing or having a channel just with the place that you're trying to say, send money to. There is well, generally- Having a channel directly is pretty good, um, except um, it can be bad in the case that they are the company, like malicious. So you have to sort yes. of make it a yeah. decision, like, you let's like a worst case scenario, right? Is illicit drug marketplace. Okay. Having a channel with them is very effective, um, except that no, except for the, the, the cross layer links problem, right? So if you look at the, right. the coins that come out of that channel will be linked to them, depending on how well they manage those, those links, because they will then go and sell the coins, and then they will get linked back to your coins that went into the thing. And so perhaps the because of that problem, it's perhaps not a good idea to make it directly. But let's say somehow you can get rid of that problem, make a channel directly with them, and then their coins where they they coin join or do something really special before they you know they uh, they uh, they uh, sold anything on an exchange, or maybe they never sell. They're hardcore hodlers and they just uh, sell the drugs to stack sats. Mm. Uh, if you, even if you had this assumption that that would be good, but what if it's run by the feds themselves, right? And then it's then you're totally screwed, and so. The point of bringing intermediaries is to you have to sort of decide whether you want to bring in intermediaries right that's right um, and usually it probably will be the right decision but you still have to be careful in the case of the blockstream store uh the, probably what you're buying is not too sensitive um but also you they're very trustworthy there at the blockstream store i'm sure so it's sort of like uh, doesn't really matter um so much but other things you have to sort of like, what is the, the destination? How do I, much do I trust it? And how important is it that the thing is private? And you have to sort of weigh up there. Probably the right answer is to use two intermediaries most of the time. And as you mentioned previously, even trying to do something like a coin join or a coin swap before opening the lightning channels in the first place, just to Absolutely. create a bit more of that disruption of the link with your, your past on-chain history. I guess yeah. another thing here That's in the two things to think about, right? The yeah. Keep the cross layer links. Uh, make sure you understand the implications of your cross layer links. Yeah. Before you make payments, because that's uh, that's the big thing. The other thing here that we um, haven't sort of said specifically, but I think it's sort of implied in what we're talking about is that when you're running a Lightning Network node is to, well, I guess that's it. You don't rely on a third party node, or if you do, be aware of the privacy trade-offs. Um, because with a lot of what we're talking about, uh, you could have really good uh, cross-layer links looked after in terms of coin joining or coin swap before you open a channel. You could implement a couple of intermediaries, which you seem to feel like are trustworthy enough before that final point. But at the same time, if you're using a third-party node, they know the majority of that information as it is. And in fact, you probably wouldn't have as much flexibility about whom you open channels with and, and so forth. So I guess a big privacy improvement probably off the bat is is running your own node rather than relying on a, a third-party custodial node. And that gives you a bit uh, more flexibility and more yeah. privacy depending on how you use it. Yeah, yeah. So like 
it depends on how much you trust those guys. That's the thing. Like, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I think running your own node is absolutely necessary um, for the network to exist, right? To But you have to sort of say, like, if you run your own node and you do it badly, okay, you set up your channels badly and you're not, like, taking care in this and you're making really privacy sensitive payments, right? That, that's the other thing. Like most of the people listening to this are not making um, illicit payments, right? So they're just like, they're taking this approach where they sort of just use VPNs and stuff to reduce their fingerprints or uh, to reduce the amount of data like that can be dragnet harvested by people. I think that's what people's most approach. They use their, you know, their Calyx OS on their phone maybe, or they're looking to do something like that and reduce the not using proton mail instead of google or something or they're running their own mail service they're really um really into it um and yeah they're trying to just reduce them and just do best practices and this is the i guess the the running your own node would be kind of like a best i'm not i'm not 100 sure it's like a best practice in order to get the optimal right the optimal uh, privacy running your own node is there but if you if you happen to agree that like people who like async who run the phoenix wallet which i've heard good things about are not giving away your data and you just want to you know reduce chain analysis stuff and people getting your data then as long as you trust them then that is actually a good way now if you now of course is don't trust verify but if you take things into your own hands and you just like oh i route uh, let's let me route through this node and um you know if they happen to be run by a chain analysis company that is like advertising low fees or whatever you may have goofed yourself um yeah. as a, as opposed to async where the, the if they if they are doing what they say they do right out, your outgoing payments will not be linked to you in any way. It'll be made through an intermediary that is making a lot of outgoing payments, right? So it's really difficult to correlate anything to you. And incoming, it's also receiving a lot of incoming payments, which will also just go there uh, from everyone else's view, will just go to async. Uh, That's right. right? That's so, sorry, you go. Yeah. So, and they will also be more reliable. <laughs> That's the other thing, right? So they, uh, you, the payments tend to be reliable there. So there is a big win if you can find an intermediary that is not a chain analysis company, is not uh, using your, your information against you. Um, now you need, and the thing is, even if you're doing that, running your own node, you still need to find those intermediaries. You just have more control about it, what you're giving them and when, right? Uh, that's... Uh, and more and, and better privacy if you're on chain coins because you're gonna probably though I mean I don't know how, how Phoenix Wallet works but it uh, or the Phoenix Lightning Node on your phone works but I'm guessing that it using their own kind of Electrum servers or whatever they, all these that's how these things usually work and so you're also giving your your coins to them um, if they have an on chain if they if they if they couple it with an on chain wallet so it's like you're putting quite a bit of trust in them but you also are putting trust in random people that you open up channels to, especially if you don't know what you're doing. Okay, that's, but you have more control. True. You can get you can get the optimal Lightning privacy experience only by running your own node. But if I'm just talking to someone who doesn't know what they're doing and just wants and reckons that one of these companies, Breeze or Async or you know the the uh, the, uh, the Blue Wallet or these or, or a fully custodial one, if they reckon that those ones are those guys are willing to take a bet and they don't have the time for it, I would think it's still a good a good idea to probably use a custodial or semi-custodial wallet at this point 
because the, the number one reason is payment reliability, which we haven't really talked about, right? We, mm -hmm. we talked a little bit, it's like there's an opposing, uh, there. there's a trade-off there, which is um, not great. And so you really want payments to work um, when you're using Lightning, because it's kind of the point. And so make sure they, if you do things yourself, you're in charge of your own privacy, better control, but you also have to make sure your payments go through, otherwise you won't even be using it. And then the, the tool has lost its purpose completely. That's my sort of thinking on that. No, you're absolutely right, because there can be that false sense of security of saying, well, I'm running my own node, so it's private, right? And it's like, well, that's, that's a very big statement. And not really, because it's like, well, uh, have you made an alias really clear that people can track you by? Are you using Tor or not? Or what about your network privacy beyond Tor, like VPNs? But also all the things that you just mentioned in terms of like, well, who have you set up your channels with? And are those mm. trusted enough? And do you know that they're not chain surveillance companies? I, I would say for beginner users, it, it might actually be far better to go with one of these sort of custodial or semi-custodial um, type wallets because then at least if you're trusting of that service like an async or breeze or something along those lines you get a lot of the privacy benefits uh, on the sender side of lightning which is generally speaking um, better for privacy than say uh, the receiving side so yeah that's the good takeaway points one thing that yep. we haven't uh, mentioned yet, but I think it's sort of implied in, in what we're talking about in uh, the ability to probe channels that are unannounced or the ability to see public channels because they are announced, is that um, on the receiver side in the Lightning Network, um, there is kind of very little privacy because when you share a, an invoice, you're actually giving away um, on-chain data because the, the invoice itself will normally have things like your node alias, um, the IP address of the node, uh, the channel ID, essentially that helps people then find a route to your node so they can pay you. Yeah, I, does it have the IP address? I don't remember that, but it definitely, yeah, it has the damn channel ID and that's the cross-layer link we talked about. Mm. That's a really bad one for the receiver. You have to get rid of that one. Um, you know, a node would be fine. I mean, you're going to need to say where it has to go. So the node or some key will have to be identifiable, but, you know, maybe there, there could be ways of just having like every single payment has a different... Um, you know what? Well, what what you want to do there with the payment, like, because when you create those uh, those invoices, like with I'm guessing with Phoenix, it will the node itself will not be your little node. Actually, it will probably be the Phoenix node. I hope, like, that's the way I would design it if I would design such a service, right? So that's how you get receiver privacy. Is you get the the node that it says to send to is really not the terminal node. It's a node that you have an intermediary you have in front that receives a lot of payments and they themselves, they then forward that to you um, because there's something in the onion that will tell them. I don't recall exactly if that's possible right now, or but that's the way things should be done in theory. I work on the theory, not on the practice. I, I think but that's, I think that's exactly how that works. Yeah. Is okay. that, um, that will be the, from the purpose of the or from the perspective of the spender that will be the terminal point but then async will receive it and know that this is, belongs to your wallet node and then will then forward it onto you instead and if a channel's not yeah. open they'll they'll cover that essentially yeah yeah, oh, that's, yeah that's good good another, service look another <laughs> weird thing that sort of popped up for me recently that i thought i don't know if a lot of users are aware of this is when they reuse lightning invoices which like obviously a lightning invoice, the way that it works or the, the way that it's kept secure is that there is a, you know, the pre-image that once mm -hmm. the payment has been uh, sort of comes to almost fruition, that pre-image gets shared. That's like the secret that lets everyone collect their routing fees along the way. 
um, and of course for the the receiver to like unlock their Lightning Network transaction that they've just received. However, people can sometimes well they will sometimes post it up on things like Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they'll, they'll reuse that same invoice. And my understanding is that if there is a node or an attacker, you know, sophisticated enough that can see that, say, second or third or fourth transaction that's reusing the same invoice, they could essentially take those funds. Um, now, now the technical nuance of this is sort of lost on me a bit, but because they would more or less have access to that that pre-image, that secret that's been used previously when the invoice was first derived. Um, yeah, I guess we don't need to go too much into the technicals of that. But for anyone listening, it's probably just good to know that an invoice on the Lightning Network should really only be used once if you're receiving. You shouldn't kind of keep reading yeah. that same Lightning invoice over and over, even if you think, oh, but it's for the same amount and I'm using it on the same day or something along those lines. It's like that's uh, sort of defeats some of the purpose of the security built into the Lightning Network to make sure that the receiver receives their funds and everyone along the way gets paid the correct routing amounts. Yeah, this um, the thing is, I would like to make a point there that is, it's not a theoretical limitation though. We could have invoices that you make as many of them as you want. I just, I think it's just, uh, I'm not sure what happened with that specification, but it was called spontaneous payments. Mm. I think Rusty was working on it, but you can do, you can do that. Uh, I don't know, I can't remember all the details of it, but yeah, like theoretically, it's easily, I think it should be easily possible to make an invoice that multiple people could pay um, the same amount or a different amount if they wanted to and still get proof of payment um, for that thing. They would go, I paid this much you know, money and then maybe you send them a message in the onion where you send this extra date and you say like, I'll pay you, you know, a million sats to sign this message. Maybe the message is I donated a million sats on this date, right? And so you could you could uh, send whatever message you want and pay for the signature. Mm. Um, we would probably it'd probably be beneficial to have PTLCs to do this um, to actually get the signature that you could prove to other people. But the point is that you could get um, yeah, probably you do need that. That's maybe the reason we don't have yeah. So the- theoretically, now that we have Taproot Schnorr, we can actually do that. We probably couldn't do that before. It's the specification have- gets to be written, I think. Gotcha. Yeah, but the capabilities there. And yeah. that's probably a good segue as well, because we've talked uh, a bit about yeah the, the issues with Lightning Network in regards to uh, privacy and that convenience trade-off. Some of the more, uh, I guess, conceptual ways of looking at it, um, like you've mentioned, the those cross-layer links. And so we know a bit about the problems. And so I'm curious, like, what what are you aware of that's coming down the pipe in regards to solutions to those problems or yeah. even if you've got one that you know you're either working on or kind of theoretically trying to uh, to figure out yeah maybe we'll sort of throw that in there as a there's some solutions down the track basically yeah so the way the lightning work is specified now is like hasn't taken advantage of all these things and there's a lot of room to grow and improve on all kinds of things especially payment reliability which is one of the things like i don't think for me as a user the privacy thing is not as important as knowing my payments always going through. Um, I don't know how others feel that they, that's the most annoying thing for me when the payments doesn't fail, so doesn't doesn't succeed. So we have uh, improvements to be made there. There's improvements to be made in privacy and, lo- and all of them can be done with the current way the Lightning Network works. And I'd like to say before I, you know, as I criticize things, I don't even put work into the Lightning Network in terms of actual coding effort. And it's incredible that this, the first of it's incredible that Bitcoin exists, but it's incredible that we've actually, that those uh, inc- those people who uh, 
dedicate themselves to Lightning Network have created a layer on top of that fantastic first invention that is just enhance it. And it's just, um, I'm unfathomably grateful to those people who uh, work on it. Now, I, so I must say that before I criticize things, but my job, my, my only contribution is criticism, right? <laughs> because that's, I work on the theory um, of what it is and what it could be, right? So it's like, this is like this, but it could be like this. And so the, the solution, I am preferring that I am working on the, the theory of is a solution that's already it's been suggested some quite some time ago. Okay, so it's not um it's not sort of new. Just that the the actual practical way of implementing it is not efficient. is not uh, is not practical. So if you if you Google up uh, there's a paper called Tumblebit, which was the first payment hub proposal. Okay. Um, and this pa a payment hub is is kind of like this this intermediary that we have um, that we have in the Lightning Network already. And one thing we haven't talked about here is that the Lightning Network has kind of already progressed into a kind of hub and spoke architecture, right? Um, I think uh, everyone acknowledges that you know where there's going to be some main routing nodes mm. and that people are going to use those because they're well connected. And the more well connected a single routing node is, the better it is as a person to make a channel with both uh, for, you know, for payment reliability and for privacy, because the more payments going through that thing, the, more, the bigger an onset you have, basically. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So this is hub and spoke. I mean, the hub is, is the central hubs and then all these channels going into them. Uh, there'll be a few popular ones and the rest, you know, you can always connect. It's permissionless. You can always create your own channel and people could always connect, make channels with you. But it doesn't really make too much sense to for, uh, you know, to have this really spread out lightning network where everything goes through a whole bunch of hops. It makes sense to have these hubs and they're all really well connected to each other, a handful of them. And then we connect to those. Now, if they start censoring transactions or misbehaving, we can always move to a new hub or to one of the existing hubs you know, there and get uh, get rid of this hub from the network, right? So it's not, um, it doesn't mean, it's not centralization here is not actually a bad thing at all. In fact, um, like most things, the centralized version is much, much better than the decentralized version. If you've seen any attempts to make decentralized Twitter or decentralized, um, you know, uh, Uber or whatever on the Ethereum blockchain, it like, doesn't really work. And so, uh, the reason we have decentralization in Bitcoin's layer one is because we have specific properties that cannot be achieved without decentralization. Okay. But in Lightning, we can actually achieve those properties with like a very large degree of centralization. Uh, perhaps. Okay. Perhaps. Okay. Now it depends. Right. The center you centralize, there's less parties to, there's more, less parties you have to corrupt. Like if you're a, a, a chain analysis company, um, you can get one of the popular hubs and you become one of the popular hubs and then you sell your data behind the scenes to the NSA, whatever. So that's um, not so great. And then you could corrupt other ones by threatening them uh, because they're large and they're probably easy to identify individuals running them. Uh, so there is not, uh, certainly not, centralization is not a panacea, but the most important thing is that we could scale the Lightning Network to have a lot of, lot of people using it with a lot of centralization, a lot of pay payment reliability there. Okay, but there is this privacy problem, right? Um, you know, centralized hubs that try and like, you know, censor payments are not going to be work, but centralized hubs that um, spy on you and sell stuff to the best paying government, maybe they would, maybe they would work. 
You know, we don't, we don't, we can't like sort of exclude that. And so, and the fact that the threat of that, the threat of that possibility means that people try and sort of decentralize things to the point that their payments don't go through very well, right? And so this is, this is, we want to remove this conflict between convenience and privacy, okay? So what we imagine in this Tumblebit paper imagines is a payment, something called a payment hub. And a payment hub is like just a lightning intermediary, you can think, but it, it instead of getting privacy by adding multiple hops, right? By adding a second hop, you get privacy with more privacy than you would have with multiple hops with a single hop um, under some assumptions, okay? So the idea with the payment hub is using some tricky cryptography, we can have a payment go through it without the payment hub being able to link the incoming payment to the outgoing payment. Right now, the payment is linked, right? So in Lightning, you, you say the, pay, the payment goes in and you say, I want this to go to this guy, this channel ID even, right? With the cross layer link there. So you say, I want it to go to this channel ID. So the incoming is totally linked to the outgoing. He knows that this node was paying through uh, our node to this other node, mm. at least. Um, what if we could say that this incoming payment comes in, but it doesn't tell you where the payment is going, but somehow via magic, a payment could be unlocked on the other side going out like a blinded coordinator kind of situation yes mm. right it's almost the same idea as a chalmian bank right mm-hmm. or a chalmian uh e-cash e-cash yeah, yeah that's right. so a chalmian mint is where you can deposit some coins and then you later withdraw the coins uh but the withdrawal cannot be linked to the deposit at all okay um this is a very powerful thing and i actually expect if if payment hubs didn't exist we would still Using eCash would be a fantastic thing to do on layer two. Uh, um, just like I need to make a payment to this guy, okay? So I buy some eCash from you with a with a kind with a channel I have with you. I buy some eCash, then come around and tell you uh, to send the payment to this guy. Now this gives you very very good privacy, uh, but it has custod- custody custody right? So this this uh, Xiaomian mint there in the middle is holding on to the funds before you send them through. So what a payment hub is, is a Chalmian mint, except without the custody bit. Okay, so that's that's what it is. So instead, how does how could that conceivably work? Mm. Let's start with the, the payment uh, from the, instead of when you, the in Lightning, the sender creates a HTLC or in the future, a PTLC first going towards the intermediary and the intermediary sees that and sees that it should forward it to this next channel and that links them, Okay. With the payment hub, what happens is the chat the the coins go out from the hub first to the destination. Okay, mm-hmm. the coins go out from the hub first destination, but they are locked, similar to a, a lightning payment is is locked. But the secret is not owned by the receiver of the coins. The secret is not is actually owned by the intermediary himself. And so then, what the the receiver is given a sort of a challenge to 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 solve to unlock the coins, and in order to they will purchase the solution to that challenge by giving the challenge to the sender and the sender will purchase the solution. But the, when they purchase the solution, the purchasing of that solution is not cannot be linked to the challenge itself. Okay, So the sender will purchase that solution and then give the solution to the receiver. This, the, re, the receiver will then unlock the coins. Mm-hmm. Okay, Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Yep. 
And it's, so, I'm, I'm guessing we're using yeah. cryptography essentially to uh, not um, to basically to, to issue the challenge mm -hmm. without kind exactly. of giving away. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So the problem with the cryptography in Tumblebit is it's a bit too complicated and time consuming and computationally intensive to make it practical. It also relies on uh, it relies on cryptography you don't commonly or cryptographic primitives we don't use in Bitcoin already. So it's like you have to in, write these new libraries and everything and um, get people to use them and create very, rather complicated wallets that use all this complicated cryptography with all these new uh, dependencies that they need to complete the task. And it's slow. Um, a big problem with it is that you can only use like uh, if you have if you want to make a payment, they have to be in like uniform amounts similar to like an equal coin join. Coin join. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Similar to equal output coin joins. So this is a major drawback of that paper, but it the the, the it has been refined. So better better ideas have come out, which allow um, uh, multiple you know whatever values you want. Similar to a Chaomian bank, you can deposit you know two bitcoins and withdraw one bitcoin, withdraw half a bitcoin into a payment, and it doesn't uh, the the bank cannot link the two things at all. Um, it cannot even tell that you originally point, per, deposited two. All it knows is that you are taking out half a Bitcoin now and you have no idea how much you have left. And maybe that's all your Bitcoin that's gone. The, the, the bank has no, no idea. Mm. So we can actually do that uh, with payment hubs in a paper called A2L or A squared L um, that came out. But the problem with this A squared L is that the cryptography is too complicated and it's a bit slow. It's still complicated. Um, it's a bit much more elegant, but it still uses cryptographic primitives that we don't use in Bitcoin. So we have to introduce all these new libraries to do it. And actually the libraries themselves don't exist. They have yet to be written uh, to do that thing in, in languages like Rust. There's some C libraries and maybe you can do it, but it's really, really bespoke cryptography. And it's very, um, we don't know, really know how secu really secure it is. It's something we can sort of, is not a really a good foundation to build this on, I'd say. And so what I'm working on at the moment is doing this thing with no, uh, sort of normal elliptic curve cryptography. And that's what I'm excited about. But if we could get that to work, you can imagine that this centralizing force that already exists in Lightning can be allowed to go on unhampered because it no longer has an effect on privacy. In fact, even if a chain analysis company is running this hub, right, and but they have a and they have a lot of people making payments through it, it's they can't link the payments. So they're just actually helping the network. They didn't uh, they didn't harm the network. Now would probably be good. There are some statistical analysis that you can do, right? If and if someone is in a rush to make the payment, you can see that they you know a payment comes in of some amount and. Uh, you know, and could be linked to the outgoing payment via the amount and the timing of it, right? Although they cannot link the actual, the payment itself does not link it, the, the amount and the timing of it might, might say that those two things are a little coincidental. Um, there are some cool tricks to get around this, like the, the outgoing payment could be made a year in advance or a, a shop like the Blockstream store may make outgoing, take outgoing payments to himself, right? From the payment hub, which, uh, you know, as I said, the payment hub creates the paint the the outgoing payment first. Mm. So it creates a bunch of hat payments, right? Or dip for each of their products first, and then eventually someone comes to buy it, 
right? And they buy the unlocking for it. But there's no real way to um, to link the two, except by then via the amount, right? The timing is then solved, but the amount is not necessarily solved. Mm-hmm. But there, there are other ways of tricking this. So you could you could pay for several different things at, with one payment and unlock several other, several payments with one. And then there would be no, very difficult to link these outgoing payments that are time, not timed together with this single payment that comes in and unlocks several of them, right? If you're, you're sort of batching your payments together to buy from multiple different shops, you know, you're sort of adding things to cart from multiple different, uh, you know, shops or whatever. And then you click buy in one, in one go, it buys them all. And now the payment, the payment amount no longer links very well. You can also pay um, for a one large purchase. Let's say you're buying a car or whatever with several amount of uh, several payments coming in that would unlock that and others. And there are other, then there are actually more, there are more tricks than that, but I won't go into them, but you hopefully get the idea. Uh, yeah, there is of, still, yeah go ahead. I was going to say, it reminds me of, um, say like rather than a tour based protocol for sharing data or transferring data, it kind of reminds me a bit of like mix nets, mix nets or something along those lines. Well, not mm-hmm. quite exactly the same, but you know, in terms of, you know, splitting up the transactions or delaying the transactions significantly in between, um, whereby, yeah, that correlation attack of the amount and the time becomes uh, just sort of infeasible to actually track and kind of too confusing because there is enough other transactions that don't have a perfect correlation in regards to, uh, yeah, the amount or the timing of it. Yeah, is, exactly. Am I right? Is this the like the Fetty Mint um, and like Mini Mint, those sort of projects? Or is this something that's like distinctly different to, to those? This is distinctly different because those are Chalmian Mints and they take custody. Yeah, that's right. Of and, the point. So, and yeah. I guess the way that they uh, not circumvent, but the way that they mitigate that risk is um, with like many, many, many members as a part of the federation, which means it would require some inordinate amount of uh, collaboration uh, for someone to say, you know, take hold of your coins and not give them back. Whereas the solution that you're kind of working through would, uh, I mean, would be even a greater mitigation where that's not even possible because like you say, the the receiving transaction is sent first, like the outgoing send, uh, transaction is sent from the hub first before the sender sends it into the hub. I'll probably explain yeah. that in a confusing way, but like conceptually I have it right in my head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right, how it is. Yeah, I mean, I think if we couldn't do payment hubs, I still think that Chalmian mints are underused. Mm. That would be my preferred way of getting privacy is like one, it's controversial view, but let's say we just scrapped all the privacy stuff of Lightning and just made payments work all the time, right? Um, You know, just like don't do the onion routing, just do packet switching, which Mm. would probably be making it much, much easier. Like it worked like the internet. You just send a packet out, a payment out, and just like you figure out how to get it there. Right. And then you don't you can share the destination with everyone along the hop and they can all just do it. Right. So but then if you wanted privacy, you want to do it privately, you just go to a Chamian Mint and you make, you know, a payment to them and then they withdraw the you withdraw the payment to whoever you want. And all they see is the Chamian Mint is sending or mm. well, they don't even see the Chamian Mint is sending something, but they see the destination, right? They they can they can see this destination, but no one can know, like even the person who has the cham is connected to the Chamian Mint, no one can know that who it is apart from the champion because the champion mint doesn't even know who it is that's right. right so that's the that that i think is a is a okay some people will not like that because okay you're interesting inserting a trusted third party for um into the thing but 
it's sort of like what private like we discussed privacy in lightning and it's quite a confusing story i mean you can get good privacy i think right i think you can get really good privacy with lightning even as it is today if you're very careful about certain things and you sort of have it in your head a full model that i tried to we tried to articulate together but even me as i'm talking about it uh, do not <laughs> do not properly articulate the full model that exists in my head which is probably not also not exactly matched to reality because of implementation details right yes so it's like what privacy guarantee are you actually getting with the current privacy techniques on lightning because we know we get some payment unreliability okay one 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 thing to do is we can just make payments more reliable but there is a fundamental trade-off there between, between keeping balances private on this network and making payments reliable it's just like there is a fundamental trade-off okay um so what if we just got rid of that and just said hey uh, let's use Xiaomi and Mint to make payments if you need them to be private. Otherwise, they'll be pretty. Pri I mean, the sender will still get the privacy, just like you have the destination there uh, the whole time, right? Uh, in in each forward thing, forwarded mm. thing. So it's not that bad. And you know, you, the question, the thing is, you know what you're getting. Okay, you can tell users what you're getting, right? And you can tell it works like the internet. Same way your IP traffic works. And you could have VPNs, right? <laughs> you know, that you sort of hop to them first, which is sort of the idea of um trampoline routing which is one of the ideas right so you hop to them first if you don't want to if you don't want to see people to see your destination you think that they're a relatively um you know good party to hop through for like just like a vpn so like async is already doing that right so that's this is another way to get privacy even in the packet switch model so potentially we could make payments super reliable the same reason the you know we're talking on the internet right now and the packets are reaching each other because it's packet switched, which makes it easier. And there's ca there's capacity constraints and stuff uh, like on the internet uh, with, with and they're probably worse on Bitcoin, they're harder to resolve, right? Um, but you can, you know, every 10 minutes, you can make a new, get a new transaction in there, which opens up a new channel. So dynamically create these channels and these routing nodes can, um, you know, do a good job of having capacity to other parties and uh, not have to rely, you know, take the orders of the the sender who, and not have to tell the sender about the whole topology of the network, right? You just know who you can get to, mm. um, right? So this could be make payments really reliable. You degrade, you do degrade privacy there, but maybe people who want privacy should use a specific tool for privacy, like a Xiaomi and Mint. But then what I'm saying with payment hubs, we don't even have to make that trade off, right? With a, with the payment hub, you don't have to have the custodial trusted third party in there. You can just make private payments through the payment hub. So maybe one thing is that could come with payment hubs is that it just enhances the lightning network. And so far as you could have basically do packet switching, which I think is going to be possible anyway with the protocol changes that are coming. I think you could sort of hack in packet switching onto them. Not 100% sure about how it all fits together, but you can see how you could just like get privacy through uh, this intermediary, special intermediaries, champion banks or payment hubs, or like sort of, uh, you know, trampoline hops like async that you just you tell them what you're doing but you sort of trust them and then you get privacy that way and then it's no longer related to reliability there's no longer tension between those two things so that's what i think is the way forward that makes a lot of sense and it's a very different kind of conceptual shift compared to i guess a lot of the solutions that i've heard that are in the works or uh you know at a point of approval and now just implementation I'm like yeah. I'm just curious in terms of maybe some of the, the detail of it. Would the intention be to be the larger 
hub is better or would it be better for them to be distributed but then of course that would maybe impact the kind of capacity by hubs i mean like that the idea yeah, that you yeah think i think i think it happens like like i said it's like sort of already what happens naturally in lightning but probably accelerates it a bit or like increases that because you mm -hmm. no longer have this privacy thing problem with it so it's like the better the more payment uh, the more the, it increases this uh, tendency towards making channels with people who already have a lot of channels, right? This payment hubs, right? And these, and these payment hubs, instead of just being naturally people who have a lot of channels would stick their hands up. I mean, I'm a payment hub and I route. I mean, I make, we make payments in this very particular way with this very particular protocol with me. Um, and they, they would be, yeah. So that would centralize um, the network. The topology would become more hub and spoke than before now would it be would it make sense to go like all the way right just have a single payment hub and would they just you know defeat all the competition i think that that is unlikely just because it's sort of um if you have only a single payment hub that payment hub can although it's private it can go down mm. and then everyone has their coins locked for some uh you know sometimes similar to how payment you know if you're a lightning intermediary goes down your payments your 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 channels locked for some some time before you can recover the coins and so it would be the same kind of problem so i imagine that there would be a few but a small number of them if it would be taken to an extreme and maybe it does maybe it doesn't maybe it remains remains a niche thing like a a coin join right uh you have these coin join coordinators that are there and like you make these payment hubs which are like bespoke people that don't really get a lot of traction or on the periphery of the network and you know you use them uh you know really educated people privacy aware people just use them and everyone else uses the not the normal lightning network and that could be advantageous like i said like because then privacy conscious people have an option that they can use to get payments through the lightning network that is really um really good um, and then everyone else is just using packet switching that's right yeah which less private but more reliable yeah so there could be a whole it could be a very decentralized lightning network there just using or not very decentralized but uh more or less how it is now but using packet switching more reliably and then you have bespoke nodes that do the payment hub protocol for for uh, you know for people who care about privacy but it could also go the other way and that you know you have a payment hub uh, you know that doesn't even connect to the lightning network right it just and it, it just competes with the lightning network and then you know you make a payment and it, it just you know goes through to people it can only go to people who connect to that payment hub you can imagine a proprietary company uh starting that thing and maybe uh trying to compete with the lightning network having instant off-chain payments that are really really very private um and maybe even offering you know on ramps on lightning itself and then just sort of taking over the market that way and becoming uh, a very centralized thing. I don't know how things will turn out, and maybe it will just be a nothing burger, um, you know, completely. But where there is a downside to the payment hubs, so the payment hubs, like uh, similar to Xiaomi and Mint, there's no proof of payment. Okay, so when you make those Lightning payments, you get this kind of proof that you paid, and sort of easy degree that you did definitely pay. Whereas with this Xiaomi and uh, this this Xiaomi and Mint and the Payment hubs, you just know that you lost money and it should be impossible that you lost money to anyone else other than the guy you intended to, yeah. right? <laughs> so they don't, you don't have a proof that you got it and you cannot prove to anyone else that you definitely, um, they definitely got the money. It's like cash. It's like, as soon as you otherwise, give the $50 to them, you can say what $50, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, otherwise it's the purpose. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so there's a very, the privacy has this implication, this side effect that makes it very much like cash. And so maybe this, uh, maybe Lightning services find this inconvenient or whatever. I don't know. 
it's uh, this all for us to find out. Very true. And so is this, uh, this is sort of at a theoretical stage or have you seen, you know, people working on parts of the implementation or? Uh, it's totally, totally theory right now. Um, we're working on, I mean, the, 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 the payment hub, there's three, there's payment hubs that already exist. Okay. First of all, the, the theoretical papers that just have been had proof of concept implementations. And so there's that, but, um, I can tell you that I don't think anyone is working on bringing those existing payment hubs into production. Mm. Uh, but I'm working with some people to bring uh, a new theory, a new publication on a very efficient payment hub, more efficient than the other payment hubs and doesn't require any new like cryptographic primitives, just works with the existing uh, SecP 256K1 cur elliptic curve that we already use for all of Bitcoin's mm. existing cryptography. And so that would be um, fantastic if we could uh, achieve that. We haven't written the full proof of security and stuff like that yet. It's sort of just an idea that comes from an existing paper we just uh, published. Uh, so it's sort of like repurposing that idea for payment hubs. And I think I think it's going to work, though. I think I'm pretty confident that this works. It sounds very cool conceptually uh, because I was aware of the Fedimint uh, and kind of Xiaomi and eCash project. And I know that's been gaining a bit of traction, especially with uh, like the likes of Alex Gladstein kind of pushing for it. Mm. And I think Human Rights Foundation has um, donated some some grants and so forth for it. And that sounded good. But at the same time, yeah, with the custodial trade-off, which is normally the thing that kind of it becomes a sticking point, at least for me in, in regards to privacy. So I like the fact that this is similar in terms of its... Um, its function, but uh, yeah, just it takes away that custodial risk. Um, yeah, so let's let's there, there is I think those two things, those two concepts integrate together though. So mm. this uh, payment hub, it you will not be able to sort of um, do small amounts very well. Okay, so payment hub it still has like this uh, this problem that you have with CoinJoin is that you have like this these single amounts, right? That the the uniform amounts in CoinJoins, right? But the difference is that you can have um, as many multiples of that amount in a single output as you want, and still it can be a payment. Okay, so it's like I think a million sats is a reasonable, practical amount, right? So it's like you want to uh, buy one bitcoin, which is 100 million sats, or you want to send one bitcoin. You'll need to sort of run this protocol 100 times in uh, parallel. Hmm. Okay, so it's like in order to purchase. A one Bitcoin output from the payment hub, you'll need to, in a single session or multiple different uh, anonymized sessions, purchase like 100 unlockings, right? Uh, 100, do a, this protocol 100 sessions as the sender of the payment. And so you have to choose an amount that each uh, key is worth, actually. So it ends up being each amount is represented as key in the output. Okay, you need to purchase all the keys in order to get the, uh, the unlock the coins. And so you need to choose an amount. And this means you need a way of doing change, right? Or less, uh, smaller denominations. I think that a Xiaomi and eCash is the right way, right? If it's less than a million sats, you send the rest as eCash. Okay, but it's for larger payments. So you want to keep the bulk of it custodial, uh, non-custodial. Uh, you use the payment hub protocol. But then if there's extra on the end, you use the eCash. And mm. so your, e your eCash can build up. And I think you can make it, so sending stuff using eCash, uh, the eCash can add to the anon set of the payment hub. I think that's sort of like an experimental idea, but you could imagine that if I'm like purchasing openings, it's impossible for me, the payment hub to distinguish between purchasing openings and purchasing eCash, right? So it's like the eCash system of the Xiaomi and the payment hub system are 
complementary to each other and sort of form the same anon set. So if, you're, if your eCache is popular, and there are reasons to use eCache uh, that are practical, um, even though they involve custody. For example, I get annoyed by exchanges telling me that I'm using privacy tools uh, when, I, when I deposit them, when I use a coin joint. So, what, but what if I use a Xiaomi and Mint, right? I'm trying to send coins to an exchange to do some degenerate gambling or maybe, you know, sell some, God forbid. But then I, I, I send it through the Chamian Mint, right? And so I'm not leaving coins with the Chamian Mint. I've got a, like some kind of channel with the Chamian Mint or I just send an on-chain transaction to the Chamian Mint. Then I get the minted coins and then I set, tell it to send to the exchange. Now, it is custodial, but also the exchange is custodial, right? So it's not, uh, this makes total sense to me and the exchange cannot tell this transaction from any other, differentiate from any other transaction and cannot send me an email about that I'm using this Chamian Mint. Um, with or, the payment hub, what happened be before to... the Chalmy Mint? Sorry, thing. Uh, or they wouldn't be able to see what happened before the Chalmy Mint as well. Whether yeah, you... that's right. They just yeah. get some coins with some random history that someone also previously deposited into the Chalmy Mint, right? Um, so this is this is fantastic. So every coin that an exchange sees now has nothing to do with the coins the user has, which is exactly what we want, right? The, now they do have a history, but it's sort of like a randomly sampled history. You know, you could get, I don't know, Osama bin Laden's coins and be sending them. And then, I don't know, they get they uh, get angry about it. But, I mean, it's uh, it's not your fault, right? And it's just that they people move to exchanges that don't freeze accounts based on this, right? And, and most of the coins won't be Osama bin Laden coins. They'll be like, I don't know, hodler coins, right? It may make sense as when you withdraw from the exchange, before you put them in cold storage, you put them into the Chamium Mint and withdraw them. Right, you just had your coins on a custodial entity, so you surely will be able to handle being in another custodial entity for a small amount of time as you withdraw them. Right, that's right. Um, so I think the this makes a lot of sense, and you cannot do that that uh, that scenario with a payment hub where you where you pay to an exchange unless the exchange exchange is willing to do the payment hub receiving protocol. Right, because it's a different protocol. You have to know the coins you're receiving are payment hub coins and know what you're doing. So with the Chamian Mint, because you have the custody in there, it solves two problems, the small amount problem, and like when you just want to pay to an address straight up um, without, uh, you know, with, you could well, obviously with the payment hub, you could first receive the payment hub coins to yourself, uh, non-custodially, and then send them on to the custodian. But if you're already saying to a custodian, I think it makes sense just to do it all in one go, right? Mm. Um, you know, just have to find a payment hub that you know, a, 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 a Xiaomi and Mint slash payment hub that you you think is good, right? Is not going to steal your coins, and you don't leave them there. That's the key. There's no point in leaving coins on a Xiaomi and Mint for a long time, like as a cold storage solution, right? It, the point, the the advantage of all these services where you leave custodial services is that you have a way of getting the coins if you forget your seed words or whatever, right? You have your email or whatever, and you can go to them and do a, some social recovery and get the coins back. That's the advantage. With Chami and Mint, you don't have that. There's really no point to leave coins in a Chami and Mint, but they are very handy as cus intermediary custodians that temporarily take custody of coins um, and facilitate a payment that is unlinkable uh, in all circumstances. And that we have the payment hub protocol now, if, we, if, if it works, to do it for large amounts non-custodially mm. right so yeah i think it's uh very nice absolutely yeah it kind of it um, addresses a lot of the issues and yeah i'm just thinking like how 
what can users expect in regards to some of these ideas? Is this like, are we talking years and years down the track? Is this something that, you know, given that you're uh, using the EC DSA um, signature scheme for it already, does that make it something that's easier to implement once it's past that that kind of theory and, and uh, looking in the security side of things? Uh, we're, we're, uh, we'll be using, I mean, I don't, I think it's using Schnorr. I will use Schnorr. Oh, gotcha. Uh, yeah. Yeah, probably. But it could actually, the, the the idea I have in mind actually could use ECDSA and then probably some people like that because they don't want to be part of the schnorr and onset, right? Because maybe maybe schnorr signatures means you're being naughty in the future, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we that we have actually like like if we get we, you don't want things to be too fast. So your listeners, uh, you know, should take care. If we manage to get this all working today, then probably exchanges me like ah no like you'll probably get an email if you withdraw to a you know a schnorr <laughs> schnorr address right uh you know a tap address. Say, what are you trying probably. to hide yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so we need the exchanges to like slowly adopt segwit v1 which is the schnorr uh schnorr taproot addresses um and then once they've done that then they won't be able to get rid of it and we'll be able to have all these fun privacy tools so we don't want to go too fast now on the timeline thing the work that i can see on xiaomi and mint and i'm excited about xiaomi i want to get involved in that space a bit as i work on payment hubs so i'm glad to see it's getting funded right now the the the, the problem they have is the same as the problem is the coin join the uniform amount coin joins uh, is that you xiaomi and mints have a certain coin which has a certain value when you deposit and withdraw those coins um individually um, although those coins cannot be linked to the, you know, the incoming coins cannot be linked to the outgoing coins, they're all the same amount. Um, we know how to do that better, I think. We've got, a, on Bitcoin problems, I haven't got a problem page, but I've got an, in a GitHub issue on the Git Bitcoin problems repository about this. And uh, we, I think the theory looks like in the, the issue comments, we have the theory we need to make it variable amounts or whatever amount you want. You could deposit, you know, uh, you know, one Bitcoin would draw 0.2 Bitcoins or whatever, however much you want um, from the Chamian Mint. And that's, that's, I mean, that make that 10x is the usefulness of it. I mean, 100x is it. It's, it's absolutely necessary uh, for Chamian Mint to be, pra- for it to be practical for, to do that, I think. Um, and so to have it be able to deposit and withdraw whatever amounts you want and the exchange doesn't learn anything other than that. Um, we need that. And so that's not yet implemented, but I'm looking, I'm trying to sort of po- uh, poke people and figure out if we can put it together a team to implement that uh, as a sort of like, as maybe the Feddy Mint project. I haven't talked to them about it, but they, I mean, they're part of the discussion on the, the GitHub issue, but uh, maybe contribute that to them um, so that we have a Xiaomi and Mint project that has like variable amounts. That would be like a first big step. But I don't know how long that's going to take, but I don't know. In, uh, hopefully in the 12 months, I would say you had would hopefully have a Xiaomi and Mint that can do that somewhere. And then payment hubs, obviously, we're just in the theory stage of this new protocol. Uh, but maybe proof of concept or some, somewhere like around in 12 months time as well, uh, running up there where people can use it. Um, and then, yeah, we said we, without the UX, like the question is, when is that I have a freaking good UX that I can just like, put my coins in and everything I do is freaking private. Um, you know, uh, it's as simple as hell. I think the good thing is, I don't know when that's going to happen, honestly, but the thing that is crucial is that we now have a theoretical path. If this payment hub thing, you know, works out to get there. Okay. But we can have non-custodial, very private Bitcoin, I believe. So we have a pathway there. 
That's and look to be honest, um, to see even like the Fediment project coming to like the kind of Xiaomi and eCash uh, coming to fruition in the next sort of twelve-ish months, where someone can then kind of experiment with it. I think that's awesome. And then the fact if we're you know twelve or twenty-four months after that, starting to look at uh, this like the more kind of uh, payment hub scheme that you're discussing, I think that's great. I think that that's still relatively soon in the grand scheme of things. And yeah, like yeah. I. I'm just trying to sort of bring this back to to something practical for people to take away. I'm kind of loath to put out a bunch of rules or, or suggestions that people should follow because I, I'm much more of the conceptually understand it um, and then try to apply it to your unique circumstances and then experiment and, and kind of keep coming back to the conceptual model and keep coming back to your what you're trying to accomplish, which sometimes I'll call like the threat model. You know, what are you actually trying to or who are you trying to remain private from? So I, I don't really want to put out any strict rules or, or guidance of what people should do if they're a sender versus receiver. Like there is already content out there that's like that, which maybe I'll just perhaps link in the show notes. I think it's probably better for people to take away the discussion and some of the conceptual framework that we laid out earlier on in terms of Lightning Network pros and cons, um, as well as mm. also to know the fact that there is, there's at least a couple of things being worked on which are going to you know, push the improvements further in that hub and spoke model. Having said that, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to kind of like circumvent any suggestions or any recommendations, which you were going to, to throw in when we got to that section. So I guess I'll, yeah. I'll, probably, I'll probably bow out and say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put too many suggestions there. I do like some of Anthony Ronning's uh, article around, it came out in like 2021, which was like the state of lightning network privacy. What should senders mm -hmm. do? What should receivers do? What general concepts to keep in mind? Um, a lot of which we've touched on in this conversation. So I'd say if users do want some here are the take-home points. Perhaps look at that while listening back to this podcast. But yeah, yeah was there I, anything I would, that you thought? I would definitely recommend that you go to those kind of people you suggested. I mean, of course, if you find like this, the, the you've learned some theory or some way of thinking and you find that some points that they've made are wrong or to, perhaps too emphasized or some missing, then that's great. You can add to what they've like said, but I wouldn't, I would take them as the primary uh, advice. I also want to say, you know, like if you're doing something like illegal or illicit, you're a human rights activist and you could be caught uh, by doing something wrong here. Make sure like not to use this as your sole source of information, 100%. Like most, like the, the conversation I guess we're having is mostly for people who are just trying to do best practices and avoid um, leaking more information than they would otherwise would, right? Uh, if they exactly. didn't know this stuff. I think that that's where we're targeting. If you're doing something that you really need to make sure is private, you have to study uh, the shit out of things at the present. You know, you have to really focus on understanding it and setting up yourself uh, correctly. And I don't want to put uh, anything forward for you that is, is, isn't other than theory and ways of thinking about the things. Um, so that's what I'd say. That, that makes sense. And I think that's a, a pretty good approach to take. And I, I do agree. I think the majority of people are just trying to reduce their their footprint or their fingerprint in like a dragnet surveillance system, um, in which case I think there are plenty of tools available to reduce that enough to be significant. But you're right. If you're a political activist or a dissident uh, or doing anything that's completely illicit, uh, you probably want to know this a little bit better. And maybe I would even... Um, hazard a guess that Lightning Network might not be for you at the moment. It might be more so using on-chain tools. Um, but even then, 
you know, you, you need to know it relatively well to make sure that you're not uh, making any kind of obvious faux pas. But watch this space because it looks like, it sounds like there's a there's a whole lot coming, which is really cool. Yeah, cool. Did you have any, any final thoughts before we finish up? I was going to say, don't worry so much about your socials. I can link them in the show notes and everything else. But yeah, any kind of final take-home points or anything that we didn't talk about that you thought we were going to talk about that would be good to finish up on? No, I think uh, I've, you've actually exhausted my uh, you know useful things I have to say uh, about big technical Bitcoin things. So well done. That's great. I, <laughs> I love to hear uh, it. <laughs> I want to say that you're, you we're probably have some Aust- Australians listening. We're mostly Australian audience, I guess, I hope. Uh, we are, I'm trying to, I run the Bitcoin Sydney Socratic. So if you're interested in these kind of topics, we usually get um, one person to come on each month or so to talk about things going on. Um, it's not, it's, and you can, you can join and ask questions so different to a podcast format, but uh, similar, right? So, so you interview, sort of interviewing someone, but like interviewed by a crowd, if you like, it's sort of what we do um, and pick their brains. So we do that once a month. Uh, you'll see it on my, yeah, if you link my Twitter, but maybe you can link the Bitcoin Sydney Socratic, but we are about to move to maybe a new format because I'm here in Malaysia and we I have some people who are going to volunteer sort of helping me with this project. We're maybe changing to more like an Asia Pacific Socratic. Uh, so yeah, that's what that's I'd be keen to have uh, people join if they're in, it's certainly the people who are interested in this discussion should be joining if they're in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, yeah, that's what I'd like to say. Uh, that sounds great. I'll give you the- yeah, please do, because I'll put it up. And uh, you'll probably see me there at one of the meetings because I wasn't aware of that. Or maybe I was, but it's like this vague recollection in the back of my mind. Uh, but that certainly sounds like something I'd be keen to go to. And especially if it's uh, it's no longer kind of physical location, you can kind of join by video link or something. Sounds perfect. That's really cool. Well, Great. Thanks, Justin. No worries, Lloyd. Thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been enlightening for me. And there's a lot of cool stuff to look forward to. Uh, and thank you for sharing something that sounds like it's um, yeah conceptual shift in terms of how to look at Lightning Network privacy. And obviously, um, you know, that's something that you're working on and have put a lot of thought into. So I appreciate you sharing it uh, before it's sort of like, you know, r- ready to be released, so to speak. Yeah, thanks very much. I really appreciate this conversation. I um, I found it useful. And yeah, everything I everything I say is obviously just my opinion here. And no one, no, no one. Uh, working on lightning necessarily even knows about these things or even agrees with what i th- think there's just a, like a disclaimer there at the end you could i'm sure you can find people that disagree with me on this stuff but you know we'll see and look with anything that's uh, new and and kind of rapidly facing discoveries there's plenty of unknown unknowns in all of this as well so I think, yeah, kind of everything in this space to some degree is take with a grain of salt. It could actually change. Um, But I mean, that's the beauty of just continually learning and and trying to get your head around it. That's it. Thanks again for your time. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time.